All right, welcome back. Let's talk about the rights of the accused to face their accusers this week. So let's start with chapter seven. So first, hearsay. What is it? According to Rule 801C of the Federal Rules of Evidence, it's a statement other than made by the declarant while testifying offered as evidence to, pr to prove a matter. So it doesn't have to be verbal. It can also be things like a head nod or a signature or pointing in a direction, anything that asserts a statement. But in many cases, hearsay is testimonial, meaning that it asserts a fact relevant to the crime. But the problem is the statement is being given by a party not testifying when testimony should only come from firsthand knowledge. So if I'm testifying and say that Aiden told me that he saw Ruby stab Muhammad, the problem is that I shouldn't be the one giving that information. Aiden should, as he has the direct knowledge of it. It's kind of like citing. You should always go to the primary source for information. If you're reading an academic article and you find something good um, that's from an earlier article, you don't cite the one you're reading for it. You go back to that original source for the information. Makes sense. Now, most hearsay statements are inadmissible, but there are some exceptions as you probably already expected. So watch that law shelf video for a full like 15 minute overview of each of these um, specific types of exceptions. But here's kind of the gist. There are exceptions under rule 803 for one, present sense impression. So this is a statement to describe an event or condition at the time of the event. So example, it's cold, um, we're going so fast, I saw the man in the green sweater punch the guy in the black shirt. There's also a second one with excited utterance. And this is a statement of a, after a startling or kind of stressful event. And it's deemed to be inherently truthful. Um, just as an example with this, they used the excited utterance types of statements um, in their decision to not pursue charges for the officers involved in the Stephon Clark shooting. So just to put a perspective of how you may have already seen that. But both of these first two, so present sense impression and excited utterance, are allowed because it's assumed that people making statements at the time um, or because of excitement are not lying, because they don't really have time to calculate a lie in either of these instances. The third exception is statements about mental, emotional, physical types of conditions. Um, so you'll see this referenced as then existing state of mind. So this is where somebody can comment on what someone told you about their state of mind or maybe where they went. So for example, Ed told me he was angry or Madeline said she was going to work at 8 a.m. Um, there's also examples of the state um, of mind to show motive um, or kind of the pain that somebody was in. Um, and then there's also for medical diagnosis-based purposes, it's assumed that people don't lie about the statements that they have made in these contexts. And then the fourth is records of regular activities. And so for this, you may see police reports um, that document uh, information or the meeting minutes from a specific meeting that they went to introduce at court. So things of that nature. There are also exceptions when the declarant is not available to testify, and these come from Rule 804. So first, if there is a rule or privilege that prevents them from testifying, so think back to the privileged communication we talked about last week, or two, if someone refuses to testify, or three, if they can't remember what they were supposed to bring to the table to testify about, um, or four, the dying declaration, so things that people say when they are presumably on their deathbed are considered to be inherently accurate because they don't have a reason to lie necessarily. Because with all of these, 
we can use essentially their prior statements um, and it wouldn't be a hearsay based issue. And again, these are all assumed reliable because they don't have necessarily anything to lose. And lastly, there's an exception for statements from co-conspirators where one conspirator can tell us about statements from the other and it isn't going to be a hearsay issue. So this all leads us up to the chapter eight content about hearsay and the confrontation clause. In criminal trials, allowing out of court statements presents not only an issue for hearsay rules, but it also conflicts with the sixth amendment confrontation clause. And what is the confrontation clause? Um, it entitles defendants in a criminal case to demand that a witness testify against him or her in their presence. So kind of face to face at trial. So you essentially have the right to confront your accuser, which means that you get to then cross-examine them and their testimony. So you get to ask questions about what it is that they are testifying about. So now hearsay wouldn't allow for this, right? So that's where the problem is. Watch the Annenberg Institute video this week to dig into the history of this right with Sir Walter Raleigh and why it's so important in criminal proceedings to have this confrontation clause. Um, you also need to watch it for your discussion this week, so there's some extra reason. The basic premise, though, is this. You can't cross-examine anything but a person, so you're likely going to need the person to testify. So in his case, you can't examine a piece of paper, or you can't cross-examine a piece of paper. So the Crawford versus Washington case is another important one, as it sets the tone for how the confrontation clause continues to be applied. So here's the case. Michael Crawford stabbed a man he claimed tried to rape his wife. And then during Crawford's trial, prosecutors played for the jury his wife's taped recorded statement to the police describing the stabbing. And the statement contradicted Crawford's argument that he stabbed the man in defense of his wife. Because it was pre-recorded, Crawford couldn't examine or couldn't cross-examine the statement, and the jury convicted Crawford for assault. Now, Crawford claimed that playing of his wife's statement with no chance for cross-examination violated the Sixth Amendment guarantee that, in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to be confronted with the witnesses against him. The state Supreme Court upheld the conviction, relying on the U.S. Supreme, or the U.S. Supreme Court decision in Ohio versus Roberts in 1980, and the decision allowed the admission of out-of-court testimony against a defendant, so that testimony was reliable. So the case ends up going all the way to the Supreme Court to answer the question: Does playing out of out-of-court testimony to a jury with no chance for cross-examination violate a defendant's Sixth Amendment guarantee that in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to be confronted with the witnesses against him. And the Supreme Court held that, yes, this did violate the Confrontation Clause. And in a 9-0, to which is a unanimous, which is a very strange thing for the Supreme Court to do, but in a 9-0 to opinion, the court sided with Crawford and ruled that the Sixth Amendment's Confrontation Clause gives defendants the right to confront witnesses and cross-examine their testimony. Now, while the issue in Crawford's case related to testimonial evidence and the court um, has also held that the following hearsay evidence is non-testimonial, um, so there are a few things that can be deemed to be non-testimonial, like breathalyzers, breathalyzer records, tips to 911 operators, etc. But what about scientific evidence reports and body cams? Do those provide assertive statements that are testimonial or not? Do we need a person to make the statement or do the reports cut it? In Melendez Diaz versus Massachusetts and Bull Cumming versus New Mexico, the Supreme Court ruled that 
The chemist reports and the crime lab reports were testimonial and inadmissible without testimony from the chemist or analyst who did the actual work on the materials, mainly because you need to be able to cross-examine them. Now, what these cases didn't answer was whether or not the specific people performing the work are the ones who have to testify, or whether or not experts in those fields could testify instead, or maybe the manager over that division. While watching How to Solve a Drug Scandal on Netflix a few months ago seems wise to necessitate the actual scientists do this so that the cross-examination can ask questions to be sure they're doing the testing properly. Something to think about. And outside of this, we also see confusion about the application of this to body cams. Does the body cam footage speak for itself, or do we need the officers themselves to speak to what they've said? So things to think about. All right, until next time, y'all.